Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We are here for another wonderful panel. This is Soccer's Analytics Frontier. My name is Bob Hayes. I'm a second year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And I am pleased to introduce Omar Chowdhury, Chief Intelligence Officer of 21st Group. Sarah Rudd, Co-Founder and Chief Technology Officer of Source Football. Maladin Sormaz, Director of Football Analytics at 777 Partners Football Group. Moderating our panel today is John Muller, Senior Soccer Writer of The Athletic. Uh, as you probably know by now, we're saving 10 minutes at the end for your questions. Please submit them via Twitter with hashtag Soccer Analytics, and we will do our best to get to them at the end with those final 10 minutes. With that, I will turn it to you, John. So I should mention up front that uh, in addition to their current jobs, Laden has been head of analytics at Leicester City, uh, Sarah at Arsenal, and Omar has worked with lots of clubs. So you guys know that data analytics in soccer can be a lot of different things, right? And we're going to try to cover as much of that as we can today. Uh, but I want to start with the game itself. Uh, originally, Ryan O'Hanlon was going to moderate this panel and couldn't make it. So I promised him that I would tell everybody here to buy his book, uh, Net Gains, <laughs> which is easy to do because it's, it's one of the best soccer analytics books that I've ever read, and I've read all of them. Um, in it, he tells kind of three stories about how data has changed soccer. I mean, it tells more than that. But uh, Every sport, I think, where analytics has been matured has a story like, you know, some guy named Daryl Morey changing the way basketball teams shoot, that kind of thing. In soccer, we have the story of Charles Reap, uh, an analytics pioneer who collected his own data and kind of changed the English game, encouraged them to use long balls. Uh, we have the story of expected goals, uh, which, as, as we found out that shots closer to goal are much more valuable than shots farther away, teams started to shoot closer to goal. And then we have the story of set pieces. Uh, sadly, Matthew Benham couldn't be with us today, but that would have been his bit. Um, but I want to throw the first question over to you, Sarah, because I don't think that those are the only stories about what we've learned uh, in soccer with data. So the first question is, essentially, what has data taught us about how to play soccer better? And if you let all the smartest analytics people coach a club, what would they actually agree on? Yeah, so starting off with a, a really easy question there. Um, you know, I think with, with soccer, there's still so much to learn. And even with something like set pieces, um, if you're talking about corners, whether you should take an in-swinger or an out-swinger, there really isn't consensus in the analytics community about which one is better. And that's because there's so much nuance to how you perform the analysis. Are you talking about just from the, the first phase? Are you talking about from the initial delivery? Do you want to include second phase? How do you deal with corners that lead to corners? Um, so it's really hard to kind of say that we have these universal truths about how to play soccer. Um, and a lot of it depends on the players that you have. So with set pieces, delivery is so important. If you don't have a good deliverer of the ball, maybe you play short. Um, I think there was a, an anecdote earlier today around, you know, that could also be beneficial because of susceptibility to counterattacks. So there's a lot of kind of factors to take into this that maybe don't occur in other sports. Um, but there are some things that, we, that we've learned. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Um, back when I started, we really didn't know anything. Now we know that take shots closer to goal because uh, they're more, more likely to go in. We know that there are certain areas on the pitch uh, that some teams refer to as prime assist zones. 
if you can get the ball into those areas, you're more likely to to create higher value shots. Can you describe where those premises zones are? Yeah, so this is something uh, that my husband, Ravi Ramaneni, kind of came up with, but he drew these uh, zones. They're kind of towards the, the end line of the pitch, wide of goal. Um, so you could think not where people were traditionally taking crosses from, but a little bit deeper and a little bit more inside and doing cutbacks from there. So we know that that type of cutback or ball played right across the six is gonna give us better quality shots. And then that's something that is pretty easy to train. And so you can say, this is a pattern we wanna train for our team. And so we can do this with pretty consistent results with kind of any of the players that, that we recruit for. Um, and we can create higher value opportunities this way. Mm. Other things that we know, like you know, pressing and recovering the ball high up the pitch, like that's also really good. Very similar to some of Charles Reap's research where he said, you know, uh, possessions of shorter length lead to more goals. Therefore, let's go route one. This is kind of the modern version of it. Just win the ball back closer to goal, you have less distance to lose the ball, more likely to convert that to a scoring opportunity. The problem is creating like a really well-organized high-press team is really difficult. You have to recruit the right players for that. You have to train that a lot. And if you do it poorly, you're very likely to concede a lot of opportunities. So that's why it's really hard to say like, oh, this is like the thing that you should do because there's so many factors that you need to take into account and so many different types of players you can recruit that even though I feel like we know a lot more than, than we used to, we still really can't say, this is how you should play soccer. And I think that's the beautiful part. I mean, the additional part to it as well is uh, for every strategy that's successful, teams are gonna learn how to defend that. So with the prime assist zones, teams started defending that. So now the half space is a really valuable area of the pitch. And so you're constantly evolving, constantly adapting. It's not a universal truth and we're gonna all kind of uh, converge on that truth. Laden, when you were at Leicester City, uh, what were the most valuable ways that you influenced how the team actually played? Um, thank you for the also quite easy question. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of a boring answer, unfortunately. Um, when I joined, actually, the performance analysts were really well-versed and read around a lot uh, in terms of analytics. So I didn't really have to directly go into coaches. I could just work with them um, quite collaboratively. Um, and so for things like the underlying advanced stats that matched our style of play, um, it was just making them measurable and making sure there was a really low latency and making sure that people knew where we were on each of those KPIs. So really how it would manifest itself, I guess, is in how well we gave that information to coaching staff, the manager, and then hopefully the results. So obviously it's a little bit opaque. I, I can't say that, like, anything I did changed the style of play at Leicester, but we were fortunate. Um, Sarah's just mentioned uh, it was like a, you know, we had a pressing system also and a, a set formation of 4-3-3. So it was really easy to build around and the manager there was really clear about what he expected. Um, which made the analytics part way easier and also just interacting with the performance analysts way easier because you didn't have to have all those foundational conversations every week in terms of what are our goals. We, we already knew what they were. So, yeah, we'd say hopefully just the actual outcomes on the pitch. What's an example of a KPI where having that feedback helped the team? So, I mean, um, you know, we developed a few of our own advanced um, pressing statistics in and around both the pressing work rate in advanced areas of the field um, and also where we rank in the league or how we did game to game and you know, where we were within the variability of those. And then also the success rate of that, because obviously it's 
possible to actually try and press, but how do you know that it worked? Uh, how do you know that you got those regains? How do you know that it wasn't just wasted energy? So I'd say those were the two key ones that I felt like we did that I know for a fact not everywhere has. Um, and so those are ones we were quite happy with. And then there were some around uh, attacking possession and the sort of effectiveness of it because we were also a possession-based team. So Omar, let's say that a club maxed out every possible tactical edge that it could get with analytics. Yeah. What would you expect that to be worth in terms of goals or points or ultimately money? And is it worth it? Yeah, well, it's certainly worth it. I, I think it helps to break down competitive edges into kind of three or four big areas. So recruitment would be one. Um, kind of player human performance would be another, performance analysis. And, and a third one um, might be tactics. And if you start with recruitment, I think most would agree that that's probably the biggest area of competitive edge. So you easiest way to kind of illustrate that is you've got a team at the bottom end of the Premier League, say Bournemouth, compare them to Man City, that's a 60, 55-ish point difference at the end of the season. That's not explained by tactics, that's explained by the fact that Man City have got some of the world's best footballers. Um, so you can kind of go, well, you know, each player that Man City have got above Bournemouth is, is kind of worth four or five points a season um, on average. On the on the human performance side, I think it's quite interesting. Obviously, there's you know huge investment at clubs now on injury prevention and maximising performance. I think there's perhaps an underappreciation of how good your replacement level players are at clubs. And a great example of that is Arsenal at the moment, where Gabriel Jesus is out um, for, for a long period of time. And there's big fears about Arsenal's rest of the season. But actually, Eddie Nketiah is more than capable perhaps not to the same level, but maybe a drop-off of only one or two points over, over the rest of the season. So, you know, the benefit of getting Jesus on the pitch is, is high. You know, one or two, Arsenal could very easily lose the league by one or two points, um, but it's not, it's not enormous. Uh, and then the tactical bit, I, I tend to think of it as, um, you know, obviously a big part of that is the coach and the, their ability to extract maximum performance from the players. And so if we go back to the original point around players being worth, call it four or five points above you know, replacement level player, certainly a City player versus a Bournemouth player. I think when we've looked at it in the past, a coach can be, you know, up to 10 points and it could be, in some cases, a lot worse. I think the biggest issue is you, you just don't know a lot of the time when you're recruiting a coach what, what impact that will be because there's so much softer stuff that needs to be evaluated into it. But, but it is, you know, clearly significant. A, a Guardiola at Man City has, a, has an enormous benefit. And the last thing I'd say on, on tactics that I think is really interesting and it transcends all sports is one of the things that I think a lot of people have realised through analytics is that attacking sport is often a better way to go. So going for it on fourth down, being, um, you know, putting more aggressively when you're, when you're putting uh, for birdies in cricket, continuing, and I'm gonna, there's going to be several cricket references, I apologise here, but um, there's, you know, it's, it's advantageous to kind of keep going uh, and attacking, and I think in football there's clear evidence that when teams take the lead, they tend to sit back and tend to concede at a higher rate than they do when, when the score was level, and I think some of the top teams, like a, a Man City and Liverpool, one of the big things they've done in recent years is play, just keep going at 1-0, at 2-0, at 3-0, and make sure the game is dead, and I think that has got value, and that, that should be seen as kind of tactical edge. Mm. So you mentioned that recruitment is, is a much bigger area of, of interest for analytics and soccer um, than tactics. Lon, you've worked on recruitment you know, at one club. Now you do it for lots of clubs as part of 777. What are the hardest questions around using data to sign better players? Um, well, I guess the, the, the first one's really foundational is that you're all talking about the same thing in terms of 
what maybe the data has identified as squad needs, uh, what the recruitment department has identified as squad needs, and what the managers and coaches think are the squad needs. And aligning that can be difficult, especially seen as that can be quite um, volatile. Um, so even if you think three months ahead of a transfer window, you know exactly what you need, it can change based on you know, long-term injuries to a few key you know, positions, um, bad sequences of results that are deserved and not just bad luck. Um, so that like often snap reassessment and then reacting and responding to that, even though there was a plan A already. I think that's one of the hardest things, and it is quite unavoidable in football, um, just because things are so fluid. Sir, there's a school of thought uh, that a sports team should evaluate transfers and maybe everything else in terms of one unit, whether it be goal difference or something related to that. How well do you think that works in soccer? Yeah, so this is a topic that I've personally really changed my opinion on. Um, so when I was you know, first working at Arsenal and people would ask me, you know, oh, like, what are some interesting projects that I can work on so that I can kind of show my work and get into the industry, I would say, do not under any circumstance come up with like a one number metric for players. Because um, that's just not how clubs think about it. That's not how they're recruiting players. Um, you know, at the highest level, they're thinking about, you know, how is this player going to fit into the squad in terms of like profile, style of play, uh, offering something that the club doesn't currently have or offering, uh, you know, a backup for a player that might be vital in terms of the game model. Um, and I think those are all still really relevant concerns. Um, but where I think these kind of like single number metrics are really useful is, you know, as Omar alluded to, points above replacement. Mm -hmm. Jesus and Eddie and Ketia are not the exact same player. Um, but understanding that you can make some tweaks, how much of a drop off is that going to be? Is this worth going out into the winter market, bringing in a replacement um, if we think that that's going to cost us the title? So you can answer a lot of questions like that that are a lot harder to do if you're looking at like multiple metrics. Um, that said, I think coming up with that number is really difficult because there's still so much that goes into a player's performance that we aren't able to capture through traditional data. Um, so for example, let's say hypothetically a team has a center back who's maybe like very prolific at attacking set pieces. Um, so scoring off of corners, uh, direct free kicks, but they're a little bit of a defensive liability. And you want to know, is starting this player a net positive or a net negative? We don't really have a good way, or most teams don't have a good way, of capturing that defensive liability in terms of, you know, how much is this guy costing us by playing a player onside, making a poor decision, losing his man? Um, so I think that's one of the big stumbling blocks for these kind of single metric uh, ratings that are out there. And I think also, you know, it depends at the level that you're, you're talking about. Um, so, you know, the Premier League, I was completely blown away by how detail-oriented everything is, um, where they talk about the game at such a, a high level and such a, you know, fine attention to detail. At lower levels, you can get away with saying, well, just get me 11 really good players and like we can kind of overpower everybody else because they only have one or two good players. So I think you know, there are certain leagues and, and levels of competition where just recruiting for the best players will work really, really well. 
And then you get to a certain point where maybe that's not such a good strategy and you need to kind of think a little bit more about how are these components going to fit in together and how can we actually assemble a squad? To, to Sarah's point on the complexity, I think there's always a natural cautiousness in using analytics that oh, we can't capture everything, therefore you know, you're nervous not to kind of point to one number. But I think often you find in analytics your first approximation is very good and it, it's not... You know, it can stand up to scrutiny, it can stand up to a coach challenging it, and sometimes I think you just need to be unafraid to have a relatively you know, one number or simplistic approach that gets you in the right direction, gets you 80% of the way there, and then you can begin to break it down into the, the smaller elements. And it's just the nature of the personalities in this room, personalities on this, on this panel, that there's probabilities, it might not might happen, and, and therefore you tend to have a bit of a cautiousness about what you put forward, but actually I think first approximation is often very, very good. Mm -hmm. It's just worth saying, off the back of what Sarah said is, as well about the different levels, so obviously we have a multi-club portfolio and they're all at very different levels of football, so even within the same working process, like Sarah says, sometimes you can say, you know, for this level, we just need good players, whereas as you get towards the top end, um, in terms of quality of football, you do get more detail-oriented detail coaches and also a much smaller pool of players that improves you, so the recruitment does become, I guess, more, well, maybe less... Um, based on the one stat numbers, and then you also have to factor in style, um, potential resale, all these other sort of considerations. Whereas lower down the pyramid, if it's just results driven, um, you know, it's just improved the squad. So it's, it's an interesting challenge that, that you get. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with that. We, so we worked with the Canadian Premier League, which is, you know, in our rankings of leagues, is probably tier four, tier five level in England. So not, you know, the elite end of the Champions League, let's call it. Um, and at that level, we are able to kind of scan the market using relatively simple information around minutes played, level of play and so on to identify players in Estonia or Peru or Croatia or Brazil that could play in that league and improve that league. And some of those players have gone on to be sold out at the Canadian Premier League. But you, you're less likely to use that approach working with a Spurs or a Man City. It might help on a first kind of first filter, but actually most of those clubs already know those players already, like they're just known in the market, so it becomes a bit more detail-orientated how you identify those players. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you mentioned that one of the obstacles to, you know, using points above replacement or, or goals above replacement, whatever, as, as your sort of unit uh, for evaluating players is, is just that that's not how clubs talk, uh, how people think about these things. Is, is that just an organizational problem? Is that, could, should clubs talk about that way? Um, I'm not sure it's an organizational problem, and I'm not sure it's, it's necessarily a problem. I mean, usually, if you're going to sign, let's say, a left back, um, you're going to go and say, like, well, what kind of left back do I want? Do I want somebody who's going to be a stay-at-home left back, primary focus is defending, or do I want somebody who's going to be making overlapping runs? And sort of, you know, depending on who else is in that team, your answer is going to vary differently, and depending on what the coach wants, the answers are going to vary quite differently. So, you know, what I think is an organizational problem is if the, you know, traditional scouting and recruitment department is going out and looking for one profile because that's the, um, you know, kind of remit that they've been given. And then the analytics department comes and starts suggesting players that are like completely different profile and trying to say like, well, who should we sign? It's like, too much of a apples versus oranges sort of situation. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important to, to have, like, a clear idea of, like, what's the profile that you want to be recruiting for if 
that's something that you think is really important. You know, as I said, there are certain situations where, yeah, just get me the best left back and, you know, if I can get additional goals from him, you know, that's fantastic. If I have a really good center back and I don't really care about defensive duties, like, yeah, that's all right. Laden, how do you make sure that the data people and the scouts are all working from the same sheet of music? Um, I mean, the number one is communication. And so obviously in my team at the moment, I have um, a couple of guys on the research side and they visit all the clubs. Uh, they have direct WhatsApp and Slack and email contact with all the scouts. I want them to be as comfortable speaking direct with each other. It doesn't always have to reach me. And usually that level of comfort though, that they actually want the information. You don't just want to be like big brother with the numbers who the owners have hired, right? Um, you actually want them to want to know and it's just fostering that connection first and then coming in with the more advanced stuff that you can, you know, like go into the sort of slightly wilder stuff and maybe um, not change ways of thinking, but just introduce them to new stuff or maybe stuff that's on the edge of, you know, not really even public analytics at the moment. Um, and actually speaks to a thing like that Sarah just mentioned, a thing we always try to do with uh, any recruitment and scouting is completely separate out um, style and outcome of a player or like, or like level. So um, we always comment on what style the player is, but try not conflate that because profiles that are needed can change right over quite a short period. Mm -hmm. So you know, just try to figure out what are we optimizing here. Um, do we need a left back who can play possession-based stuff in a high-press system as much as we need a really, really good left back um, based on the next sequence of transfers we need to do here? So yeah. How easily do you find that players are able to adapt from one profile to another? Is that a constant? Probably not actually. I mean, the more experienced ones, it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but the more experienced ones have had to do that at points in their career, usually. Um, ones who've played in one style for a very, very long time. Uh, you really need to lean on the scouts and find out whether earlier in their youth career, maybe, they had to play in a different system so you don't completely pigeonhole them. Because some players can actually do that. They've just never been asked. And that's where we lean on the relationship with the scouts a lot more or what we know from coaches who've worked with them. Um, because I, you know, you, it's hard to project if, if your data set is only one thing. It's hard to project out whether they can do it. And that's yeah. that's the problem. The data only tells you what has happened in the past. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the like really underrated difficulties of football analytics. Is you know, there's so many different things that a player could be asked, and trying to isolate what are they being asked to do versus what they're capable of doing, and then how can we kind of figure out how well that's going to translate into what we want them to do. Um, you know, and there's, there's certain, you know, coaches that are very, I'd say, optimistic about their ability to get a player to kind of perform in a certain style. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any evidence to either support or refute that. It's just something we really don't know. Like a, a really important thing to think about on the back of that as well is, because you know, you say like coaches sometimes, like, I can work with this player, is look at the makeup of your squad and see like how many um, of players are in a key development stage and need a lot of time. Because usually coaching staff stay constant season to season, so there's a time squeeze. So maybe sometimes you take that risk if it's a more peak age squad and there's a young player they're convinced they can change, then you say, look, the numbers are all the same here. But in terms of strategy and risk profile, I kind of get why we would risk it this way. Whereas other times, you know, if you do that for all 11 players and say, I can change them and make them way better, it's just more difficult just from the practicality. Sometimes that feeds in, even though it's not directly analytics, but knowing that context, I guess you can have the conversation. Omar, let's zoom out just a little bit. Uh, how's the direction of the sport as a whole, uh, you know, toward more competitive imbalance, maybe towards some breakaway leagues? How does that impact the role of analytics at clubs? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it is, I think it's really striking football. We're discussing analytics here in the context of football going through an enormous, uh, I don't want to say crisis, but a real challenge at the moment where you've got a lot of um, uh, power bases within the game looking to shift influence and, and so on. And one of the interesting things is I think analytics is fueling some of that debate. You know, you look at things, some of the big shifts that are happening at the moment, the new Champions League format from, from 24 uh, was an analytically driven process. The, the type of analysis that went into informing that process, that format wasn't just... Um, guys in a pub discussing it is it, more sophisticated than that. Uh, leagues themselves are responding by understanding, and this is some of the work that we do, understanding if we change the format, if we change the number of teams, if we change um, the way that revenue is distributed in the competition, what does that do to the attractiveness of our competition? So all of that is much more analytically driven than, than it ever was, and I think maybe not that many people realise that. Uh, and then as it relates to clubs, I think increasingly, you know, it kind of exacerbates or it strengthens the argument to, to invest more in analytics because if you are a bottom-half Premier League team, you know, the gap is growing um, because the likes of the, the big six in England, potentially big seven, have got so much more money. You need to find a different way of, um, of doing things. And, and analytics is just one string to that bow. I think there are other competitive edges um, that that a club can um, develop, whether that's the academy, whether that's even on the commercial side of the club, because we've seen the big clubs really um, hoover up a lot of the sponsorship commercial money in the game, and therefore, actually, a competitive edge might be better monetizing the fan base that you have and better being able to um, grow your sponsorship revenues in order to compete with those clubs. So, yeah, it strengthens the argument. Um, I, there are some clubs that we've spoken to, particularly outside of England, that have gone we need to get into a place where when a European Super League does happen, we are good enough to get there. And again, competitive edges um, is another way, uh, through analytics, another way of doing that. Um, so yeah, really strengthening the argument, I would say. So Sarah, let's say you are one of those small clubs uh, or a club that's just behind in analytics generally. What can you do to catch up? Yeah, so I think this is a, a really interesting problem. You know. The majority of my career was spent at a club that was an early adopter, had a lot of resources around it, um, and we felt like we still struggled to answer a lot of these questions. We just didn't have time, you know. So I think your first question about like what do we know about football, like it's it goes unanswered because people within a football club don't have a lot of time to answer these. Um, so now you think about like, okay, well, I wasn't doing this ten years ago. I'm doing it now unsure of like whether or not it's still worth it. Um, so what we see is a lot of clubs just going and hiring sort of like a junior data scientist and saying, good luck, go and, go and uh, change the culture here, change the decision-making process, and catch up on 10 years of research. And so, you know, I don't think that's maybe the optimal strategy. Um, certainly you're gonna develop things a lot faster because there's a lot of work in the public space, there's a lot of dead ends that you don't have to go down that like someone like myself or Miladin has already been down. So you can kind of you know, shortcut a lot of these avenues. We know a lot more. Um, but I think this is kind of where my company, Source Football, is kind of trying to fill a market need of helping clubs get ramped up. So you know, you're going to need outside help, I think, to catch up these days because it's really hard to build a department from scratch and get all the way to where your competitors are, depending on you know, what, what league you're working in, but football is a global market, so you're always gonna be buying and selling from people who are smarter than you, that have more information than you. 
Um, so going and getting external help is a really good way to, to jumpstart this. Um, you know, and I think the other thing is there's just a ton of questions we don't know that nobody in football has time to research. And so again, that's an area where third-party consultants can do a lot of research and say, hey, you know, we're not going to be at the training ground. We're going to be working in peace. We have time to think really hard and deep about these questions and deliver, you know, the type of analysis that, you know, something like a baseball team with a research and development department would deliver rather than like football where we have kind of more pragmatic analytics departments just answering kind of the the day-to-day -day thing. So, you know, I think the kind of short version of that very long-winded answer is um, don't try to do it on your own because you're going to kind of lack the guidance. You need kind of external help. And then, um, you know, also be aware of what third-party data providers are offering because a lot of the things that back in the day uh, we had to develop on our own, like companies have wisened up and said, yeah, we're going to provide something like a line break to you for free, like you don't have to go through the tracking data and figure out where the defensive line is, the midfield line. So there are opportunities to kind of make your job easier, but I think still on the whole, it's, it's incredibly difficult to just kind of try to build a department from scratch and catch up on 10 years of research. So, but what about at the other end of the spectrum uh, for the early adopters, for the, the leaders in analytics right now, whether they're clubs or companies, what are the most kind of exciting and promising new frontiers right now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the really nice things working with my husband for the last year, so he's the VP of analytics for the Seattle Sounders. Um, so I was in the Premier League with a large staff. Uh, he was in Major League Soccer with a much smaller staff. Um, very different setups, very different organizational structures, very different leagues, um, very different budgets. Uh, what I've learned from working with him over the last year is just really how important, like, good people and good processes. Um, so maybe compromising a little bit in terms of like cutting edge technology, but focusing on do we have a process? Do we adhere to it? Are we using as much information as we can? And are we using that information in a consistent way? Um, that said, I think some of the, the 3D post stuff is really cool. And we're going to be able to answer a lot more questions about um, you know, can a player receive the ball on the half turn? Um, you know, how much does that kind of impact their ability to play forward? Um, you know, if we're working on that in training, how much can we see that improve over, over matches? So, you know, I think there are going to be a lot more questions that we can answer. I think we can get a lot better about defense using pose estimation. Um, but again, it comes back to this problem of do we have enough people that can actually uh, exist within a club, get it to the point where we're deriving insights from it, um, you know, that takes a really long time. You know, I think Luke Bourne had, uh, like, they tried to make it into kind of an inflammatory uh, remark from him, but, like, I saw, like, this little quote from him that said, like, no club in the world can analyze tracking data. And, like, I, I read that, and I'm like, oh, I'm offended, you know, starts uh, <laughs> clutching my pearls. And then the next part is because they're so bogged down by, like, the day-to-day -day operations within a club. And so, you know, I think that holds true not just for tracking data, but now this pose estimation stuff. Like, there's just not enough resources being invested in these analytics department to really leverage a lot of these cool technologies that are coming out. So the technology is kind of outpacing a lot of clubs' ability to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. 
will those new frontiers, those new questions necessarily come from new data sources like body post data, or is there still you know, a lot that we need to explore with what we've got? Yeah, I think there's still so much to be done with just event data, um, so many long-term research questions we have, you know, because it's not just the quality of the event data and what you can do with it, but like historical data, um, you know, high quality event data isn't that old. Um, so, you know, going over and having like a f an entire player's career of event data, it's very rare. We don't have a lot of players. We can say this is what they looked at at 18. This is what they looked at at 36. Like that just doesn't exist for football. Um, so yeah, it's going to take a while to kind of answer a lot of questions still just with event data. And I think that to touch on what was said earlier as well, I think the next shift is to move from that descriptive to predictive side and, and having that catalog of data going backwards enables you to do that because it enables you to see those relationships. Um, I, I remember um, being in front of a room of, of execs, and this was, I think, seven, eight years ago now, um, and talking about XG, which was relatively new at the time and, and so on. I managed to get through without mentioning XG until just now. Um, but uh, I remember talking about XG and then going, this guy, Harry Kane, who scored a bunch of goals in his first season, yeah, but he's massively outperformed his, his XG, so probably, probably won't get 20 goals a season for the next eight years. You know, if, if you're Spurs, maybe you should sell him for, for 50 million to, to United. And that was a classic case of not understanding what you were trying to predict, like you thought the XG was the thing that was predicting, but actually the most predictive thing was the thing was that, that Harry Kane was 21 playing in the Premier League for a top six, top four Premier League team. That was the thing that you needed to focus on as the data point. And actually there was already a huge history of data on that in terms of minutes and level and so on that could have told you that anyway. So that, that's kind of your 2015 version of, um, of a story of like misunderstanding the data. But I think even today, like we've got really evolved metrics that are coming out, but are they actually telling us about what the player will do when they move club or develop as a player? Um, so yeah, don't sell Harry Kane, basically. It should have been. <laughs> well, they're very determined not to. Uh, <laughs> Lon, you've talked about applying uh, an analytical approach to expert opinions, yeah. which would be a very different kind of data source. Uh, how, how does that kind of hold promise in soccer? Um, so yeah, before I moved into sort of soccer analytics, I was in the neuroscience world, and we used to try and model how uh, what people perceived was then sort of represented in activities of brain pattern, and we found that things matched up quite well. And so then I thought, really, it's not that different to the problem you have with um, you know, the scouting data you capture. It's, you know, it comes through a human filter, through a human brain. Um, but the way it's expressed can be quite different, and the consistency can be quite different across different people. So I was just think, with the amount, um, the database you already have, so for example, we said here, we don't have um, the perfect age curve from data for a player for the last 10 years because event data hasn't been that great. But we might have scouting reports, so there's already a pool of knowledge there. So how do you, uh, I mean, there are techniques to do this, but like, the next project I really want to get into is um, where can we find consistencies? Um, through the rating scouts give, through the grades they give, even through the words they use. Um, as long as you've got a nice scouting template with a good structure that's adhered to, you can actually draw that out from, uh, from that sort of qualitative data as well. And then, you know, how do you, as a football club, um, apply that strategically? So, for example, you might know that scout one, three, and five are really good at understanding uh, defensive players. I know Brighton and Newcastle have done this a little bit with positional scouts, but 
you know, you can do it in a data-driven way too and say, look, I have this pool of scouts, so I want to know this thing about this transfer target, and I know I've got these complementary skill sets here, so maybe this is how I want to attack them, rather than just using your scouting pool in terms of, I don't know, just this guy's up now, or it's his turn, or he was near that game anyway. Mm -hmm. You can actually um, use stuff that's already there and basically squeeze more juice out of the orange. Maybe that's the uh, cost-efficient way to get at defensive metrics. <laughs> it could be. If, if scouts can agree. Um, Omar, you've recently started working in cricket, tennis, golf. What ideas can we bring to soccer analytics from other sports? Yeah, so I was involved in a big uh, cricket project last, last summer with 21st Group, and um, one of the things I was struck by that they do very well, um, and they'd actually taken a lot of the ideas from UK sport and the Olympic program back in the UK. It's this kind of concept of what it takes to win, and this real kind of, I want to say, very detailed understanding of the core components of what you need to do in order to succeed. So to break it down in a football context, one thing that I think clubs don't do very well is a lot of them will understand their ambition. So I'm a mid-table championship club. I want to be a stable Premier League club in the next five years. And it will generally be, well, we'll invest a little bit. We'll look at some benchmarks and hope we get up. And then we might recruit a bit better when we've got more money in, in the Premier League. But a, a, you need a much more micro understanding of what type of distribution of player ability should you have? Should you invest in the spine of the team or the wide positions? Should you invest in the starting 11 or have depth on the bench? Um, how should you structure incentives? What playing styles are effective? All these types of kind of big macro questions I don't think are asked at all. But if you look at some other sports, I think they do ask what are the kind of core three, four principles that it takes to succeed in this, in this competition? Um, and so, as I say, um, we've done that a lot in golf. We've got a long heritage in golf now doing that on Ryder Cups and understanding how pairings work, what it takes to win in pairings. In cricket, there's been a lot of work understanding the core competencies in order to win white ball matches, for example, what are some of the key um, outputs you need to hit. I think that's really underappreciated in football and, and there's only very few clubs that have a very kind of clear stepped plan on this is where our squad is today, this is what winning looks like and these are the individual squad management steps we need to get, um, to get there. In addition to clubs, you also work with investors uh, you know, who are looking to invest in, in soccer. What does analytics look like for them? Yeah, I think it's moved on a lot in the last um, kind of three, four years. We've worked on uh, a few dozen deals in the last three or four years, um, and it kind of breaks down into three stages. So first stage, um, it would be a group, so we were working with a Scandinavian group a few months ago that wanted to invest um, in Europe, but they weren't sure which market was the best in order to buy a team and then see the opportunity to quickly rise through the pyramids. Um, through the pyramid in that, in that country. So we looked at France, Italy, Spain, Germany um, to understand which market can you invest in, which market have got good kind of work permit rules enable you to bring in players and actually have good opportunities for promotion because either the competitive balance is there or there's good promotion places or the way that um, revenues distributed in the league enables you to kind of um, buy much higher than what their pr uh, pyramid position suggests. So that might be like one role of, of analytics. Then when you've kind of identified the market, you might be getting into identifying the clubs. Um, so a good example at the moment is Liverpool and Man United. You know, there'll be investors that might be considering both. Um, and you look at a club like Man United, and our model suggests they're performing like a team that spends about £130 million less, and Liverpool are performing like a team 
that spends about 100 million pounds more. So there's like massive difference levels of efficiency over the last four or five years. And then that informs, do you want to go into a club that is a bit more of a basket case and you have the opportunity to revolutionize sporting operations and kind of realize performance there? Or do you go into a club where actually everything's ticking over and you could just kind of hand over the reins to the existing management um, and let them kind of crack on with it? So that might help your club ID piece. And then when you're in the club um, due diligence phase, it's really about understanding, again, similar to what I was saying earlier in terms of where you are today and where you want to get to, what's the capital needed in order to get to that? And again, that might seem like really obvious and done in any other industry, but you look at you know, the, the levels of investment that's pumped into certain teams and we've all sat there and gone, why have they bought that player? Why have they spent so much? And actually, if you break it down, we worked with the American private equity group um, last year that was looking at a club that's kind of 60% of the time in, in the Champions League uh, and they wanted to understand, well, if we could get them 70 or 80% of the time in the Champions League, so eight seasons out of 10, what's the capital needed in order to do that? And does it actually, is that realized either A, in revenues or B, in, in valuation in, in the future? So that kind of equation um, is being considered in much, much more depth than, than ever before. Um, the big challenge a lot of investors have got is that there is often not smart money in the market that will come in and, and buy a club. Um, and as long as you've done your process, then I suppose you can, you can take comfort in that. Mladen, you work uh, in a multi-club model, which mm -hmm. is very much the hot thing in soccer right now. Uh, what are the strengths and limitations of that model as far as your job is concerned? Yeah, in terms of just how we operate in analytics. So it's, uh, I mean, you know, the, the strengths are, um, the diversity is actually a strength. Um, football's not the same everywhere across the world. It's played slightly differently. The cultures are slightly different. And so actually it's a learning opportunity, number one. That's great for us. Um, but in terms of, you know, clubs learning from each other and cross-transfer of knowledge, it's, it's great because uh, although football has become globalised, a lot of the time what that means is players into the Premier League. Um, there's still player movement chains or, um, you know, ways that people communicate across other leagues. Um, so, we, you know, like within our clubs, uh, there's a lot of great knowledge transfer. That's a plus. And then obviously having their resources, uh, getting to work with their scouts, analysts, coaches, managers, um, is a really big plus. Uh, the only limitations really, are, like I said earlier, you know, one club, is, it can be difficult to align processes um, and get everyone on the same page. So in terms of, you know, analytics, trying to do that across, you know, five or six clubs, it's the same challenge, just multiplied. Um, but, you know, it comes from central ownership, which kind of makes it easier. But again, communicate, communicating across time zones, cultures, working practices, uh, sometimes even climates. Um, you know, you can't, you don't just go in and try and make everything like the Premier League without understanding what limitations there just are naturally in some of those regions. Um, so, you know, the limitations is, you know, mainly practical things you'd expect to see at one club, but multiplied by six. Um, but I'd say, you know, I'm biased, but the strengths are with <laughs> All right, Sarah, we'll close with you. Um, what have you learned over your career at StatDNA, at Arsenal, and how does it apply to new contexts like at Source Football? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons that we learned at Arsenal that are kind of applicable in different leagues, different teams, um, and then a lot of stuff that I was actually surprised at how much that didn't really translate. So if you think about recruitment for, you know, a, a ambitious kind of Champions League level Premier League team, um, there's, you know, a very small number of players that are actually at the output level capable of playing for that team. Then when you factor in style, you're down to a very short list 
already. Uh, working across other leagues and teams, you're going to have a much larger group of players to recruit from, and so you suddenly have an infinite number of directions you can go in terms of how do I want to search for what's the optimal player to bring into this team, you know, how can we kind of save money here, spend money there. So uh, you would think it would be easier at a lower level, but it's actually much harder because you have a lot more, more options. Um, you know, I think one thing that I really miss about what we had at Arsenal is uh, we owned our own data collection pipeline. Um, and hearing Chris Slosher talk about uh, how MLS wants to move towards kind of having more ownership over their data pipeline, being able to say, hey, I want to collect data on this because I think that's going to be valuable for the type of analysis we want to do. Like, that's, that's so powerful. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking about how can I collect data within a club that's going to give me a competitive advantage. Um, you know, right now there's a very small number of data providers, and so you're, you know, using one of a handful, same as everybody else. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of opportunities for competitive advantage that clubs aren't really able to take advantage of because data collection is hard. Um, there's a reason why a lot of clubs aren't doing it. It's because it's, it's hard, it's, it costs a lot in time, and it costs a lot in money, but it's something that, you know, when you're talking about making huge decisions that are going to impact, you know, the value of the club, sporting success, future revenue, player trading, uh, you know, it's probably worth a little bit of an investment there. Um, and I think, too, like, I didn't really appreciate kind of the dynamics of how different player trading is across different leagues. Um, so Premier League, very international, recruit from a lot of different places. Same with Major League Soccer. You start going down to lower divisions, it's quite insular. And so we just don't have as much confidence of how is this player going to translate from this league into that one, because we just haven't seen it before. And so you're kind of like trying to infer for these predictive metrics uh, for stuff that you've never seen before, whereas I think uh, at the Premier League level or Major League Soccer level, you can kind of point to concrete examples and say, you know, these are the guys that were successful. We know why they were successful. Therefore, we think this guy will be successful. And you just can't do that, I think, in a lot of leagues yet. But that also means there's huge opportunity to gain an advantage there as well because you're suddenly recruiting from areas that other teams aren't willing to take a risk on. All right, we've got time for a few uh, audience questions here. And the first one, up for anybody. Uh, what is one intuition or assumption you have about soccer that greater access to data would allow you to test? And probably a lot more time, too. Um, I think that defense is fundamentally unquantifiable. <laughs> That's <laughs> not really, but it'd be good, good to have more data to find no pattern. In, but. Yeah, I, I don't think more data is needed in a lot of cases to what we touched on earlier. I, I, I'm really interested in the role and impact that coaches have. Like, it's such an important hire, and it's made every 15 months on average, uh, and it has such a big impact on where your season goes. I think whenever we've looked at what predicts coaching performance, there just aren't that many predictors. and. So maybe more data does help on that, but I think it's more kind of a deeper understanding of the drivers of success of a coach in one environment than the other. And some of that might just be cultural, psychological, and so on, which might be harder to collect, but I suppose in theory would be. 
I think it depends a lot on, on what kind of data you're getting more of. Um, so, you know, there's so many questions that we don't have around, like, what is coachable, what isn't. So we don't really know, like, if we bring this player in, can the coach actually make them better or not, and how? And what would good data look like for that? I mean, I think a lot, a lot would kind of come from the club internally about what they're training, what are the objectives of certain drills, um, how much did each player participate in that, and then what do we actually expect the output of that to be? Like, what are KPIs that we can link to that? Um, and it's really, it's hard for a club to do it because there's only a certain number of, like, valuable training sessions that you get in a season. And so, like, a single club can't really generate enough data to get any sort of uh, viable results from that. So it'd have to be something where you get a, a cohort of clubs working together, having a consistent methodology recording that. Sir, you get this next one too. How do you evaluate player value in leagues that have a salary cap like MLS uh, relative to more traditional leagues? Sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, how do you evaluate a, player, uh, a player's value in salary cap leagues like MLS versus traditional leagues? Yeah, I mean, I think um, putting numbers on, on player values is, is quite difficult. Um, so, you know, there are certain leagues where it's just impossible to sell from. So do you say that that player has zero value because you, you can't sell for them? Um, that's quite difficult. And then in MLS, what we see now is that players are getting, uh, like, contracts that they wouldn't be able to get in other leagues because of the salary cap rules where there's a premium on domestic players that can play at a high level. Um, so if you're quite good MLS player uh, from the US, you're not taking an international spot, uh, you're gonna be commanding a higher salary than, uh, than you would maybe somewhere in Europe. So I, I guess the answer is it's, it's difficult. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah. All right, uh, this next one's open. How are clubs thinking about quantifying concepts like fit and chemistry when they're recruiting new players? And how should they be balancing the views of scouting and analytics to do that? I guess that one goes to you, Milad. <laughs> um, so in terms of, in terms of chemistry, um, I think it builds into having a really clear spec at the start and a clear plan of what your club needs to do, as much as you can have one. Um, and then building into that, the hardest thing to do is, I guess, so, so we did this recently at Vasco. We had a summer where we signed, I think, now we're up to nearly 15 players uh, because we went up a division and the standard's completely different. So building like a clean slate squad is really difficult because of the assumptions you need to make. You know, at Leicester we did, I think Maximum Wells there, three or four transfers in one summer. So it's really easy to see whether jigsaw pieces fit. And so the task is more defined. When you're trying to build a squad from scratch, um, it's, you're making way more guesses and assumptions. And even though you may have, you know, a list of transfers you think you're gonna do, it's really hard to quantify whether you can execute or not once you get into the negotiation phase. So, um, in terms of that, the best you can really do is make sure that there's a solid, well-recorded logic as you go through, so you know what you are thinking accurately and honestly at the time, so that on your next round, because there's always a next round of squad improvement, um, you can actually do a proper analysis of like, you know, was the process good here and the player just didn't work out, or was the thinking too fuzzy? Um, and then, you know, on the back of that, there's other ways that I'm sure Omar's already ahead of the game on and trying to get squad chemistry uh, down to a number and stuff like that. And, you know, everyone's in that same arms race. I'm not going to say too much about that, but maybe one for Omar. 
Yeah, I mean, when we looked at it before with, um, with coaches, um, just trying to understand, for example, um, the players in the squad, when they performed at their best, what types of coaches and playing styles have they uh, played under? So that's enabled us to kind of develop this kind of coach fit metric in our head coach recruitment work. Um, so that's one example of it. I think ultimately, I'll go back to something I said earlier, which is around just trying to find those correlations and try, historically of things that have worked well together and use that to build a bit of prediction rather than just doing assumptive-based analysis where if we've got X and Y and they're next to each other, then, then it works well. It's to have X and Y next to each other historically actually predicted better performance for those, for those players. So I think that kind of next-level interrogation of the data, not just developing those metrics for the sake of it, but actually understanding the relationship between them, I think, is something that's definitely underexplored at the moment. All right, our last uh, audience question is a good one to end on because it brings us full circle. Uh, there's a section on this in Net Gains, one of the best soccer analytics books I've ever read. Uh, there's a school of thought that midfielder actions are fundamentally of low value, uh, or at least very difficult to measure. Do midfielders matter, and how do you evaluate them? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, so I think with all soccer analytics questions, it depends. Um, you know, there's certainly certain styles of play where you can bypass the midfield, and so they're going to have less impact on the game. They're not seeing as much of the ball. Um, but, you know, I got my start in the industry by coming up with a paper that kind of tried to evaluate the, the value of passing. And, you know, there's biases in these kind of types of research where, like, the closer you are to goal, the more value you're creating. But you need somebody to get the ball close to goal. Um, and I think that's a really like, important skill to have. Um, it's also really important to understand that like, there are certain times where you want to control the game with possession. So midfielders, even though you're not actively trying to score, you're, you're trying to prevent the other team from not scoring by just not letting them have the ball. And so again, that's something that, depending on your framework for evaluating what does value mean, can come up with a really different answer in terms of what's valuable, what's not. Um, and then I think lastly, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in the high press over the last you know, five to 10 years. There's a premium on press resistant players. You need to have some of those to help you get out of that high press. And again, depending on how you are defining value, you know, I would say they're, they're quite valuable. Yeah, on the back of what Sarah said, I think it's important not to consider our midfielder in a vacuum. Uh, a lot of the time it's just balancing profiles across two or three or however many you play. If you look at it already, it's the most diversified. You know, if, you, if I told you someone's a central midfielder, you'd ask what kind, is he an eight, is he a 10, is he a six, eight? You know, like, all these roles already exist. So there's already a clear um, demarcation saying like, we don't expect them to be able to do everything. And if they can't, that's a 100 million pound player. But when you're trying to actually quantify their value, I think it's more about balancing across what two or three can do. So along with what Sarah said, so you know, who's the press resistant, most press resistant one? Are they all that? Um, who's the destroyer out of possession? Who's the progressor? And then you know, if they tick more boxes um, than, than just those, then that's usually where you see the multiplier and you've got someone like a Jude Bellingham that's really highly valued. Um, but yeah, and on the back of that, I think the thing we grapple with especially is trying to once you bring in things like possession value frameworks, just the non-linearity of how important actions are at either end of the pitch compared to midfield, just trying to find a real, like, easier way to sort of um, almost boost 
the value of some events that are happening in a long sequence uh, in a way that's just really easily uh, explainable. Um, that's, that's where we have the challenge right now. And you know, if there was an analytical way to better work back from goals, and I don't know, I don't know how you do that exactly, but change the weights of those, you know, like a sideways pass out of pressure to the guy, you know, the Modric pass, basically. <laughs> Um, Modric seems valuable. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like, what, why? Because you remember the old fantasy game? He never, you know, he never got you points, but what he did was, if you watched, absolutely vital to the structure of a midfield. So, you know, just figuring out maybe more how we value those pre-pre-pre-assists um, or whatever you want to call them. All right. I think we'll stop here. Thank you guys so much. This has been really interesting.